0: so uh, today again, we're going to be continuing in our sermon series with the book of Acts, Acts chapter eleven verses nineteen to thirty i uh, I know last week we weren't able to meet after I called it, it whenever ten o'clock rolled around. I looked outside and the roads were like perfect and I was like it would it would be that way I don't know how it was in gray for you guys, but it wasn't it it, it was it is what it is it doesn't matter um so today we're going to continue again in our in our sermon series to the book of Acts. <clears throat> And we're going to look at an important church in an important part of the world, a new church that's on the scene. And that is the church in Antioch, in Antioch, that becomes the center of the Christian world. And it, it got me to thinking about centers of power in our society and in our day. Um, the most important city in our country would be Washington, D.C., right? That's the center of our government. That's the center of our nation's power, where the president is, the Congress, all that good stuff. And if I were to ask you, you know, where D.C. is, everyone knows where the capital is. Um, I've never been there, maybe one day. But did you know that D.C. is not the original location of our country's capital? In fact, there were two cities that served as the capital of the United States before Washington, D.C., does anyone want to guess? Do you know? I know Philadelphia. Fi- Philadelphia, yeah, that's one. Neither. <laughs> New York City. <laughs> New York City. <laughs> that's like, uh, New York is a great one. Just throw up, right? Throw up there. you probably get it right. Yeah, New York City. Well, you teach history, right? So, he, he, yeah, I'm a fair advantage. Um, so, New York City and Philadelphia. Those are our two capitals before Washington, D.C. In fact, um, D.C. was just swampland whenever um, our capital was in Philadelphia. It wasn't even around, and then they decided to move it over to D.C. So the center of our country, the power center and the guys that made the decisions, it moved from New York to Philadelphia down to Washington, D.C., in the book of Acts, if we had to pick a center of the Christian world and the power center of the Christian world, it would be the church in Jerusalem. That's where the church is located in Jerusalem. That's where Peter is, right? That's where all the apostles are. That's where James and John are. In Acts chapter 11 today, we're going to see all of that change. All of that's going to change as the capital of the Christian church moves from Jerusalem up north. To this town of Antioch. And what we're going to see, it's the church in Antioch that plays a major role in the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. And so as we read this section, the questions we need to ask, what about the church in Antioch made it su- successful? What are the things about this church that God planted in this ancient city that he used Really, that that we believe in Jesus today because of this church. What about it worked? That's the question. That's what we're going to see today in Acts chapter eleven, verses nineteen to thirty. To put a little bit more um, clarity on that, we're going to see the church of Antioch becomes a model for us in Gorham, wherever we live Westbrook Gray, Falmouth, Scarborough. The church in Antioch is a model for us in evangelism, in discipleship. And in benevolence or charity, that's what we're going to see. So let's go ahead and read through our uh, section today, Acts eleven 19. I'll start for us and just work through the entire section, then we'll jump in. This is what it says, starting in verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, the apostle Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So, so far, we've seen throughout the book of Acts the church spreading. Like, like a wonderful disease. That's not a great way to put it, right? But... It started in Jerusalem and it's spreading out. And now we get to Acts 11, where God is starting this church to spread it out even further. And verse 19 tells us why, what happened. It says, those who were scattered, they scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen. If you remember, just to kinda get context here, Stephen was the first martyr. That was a few chapters back. He was the first person to die Because of his faith in Jesus. And there's this guy named Saul who oversaw Stephen's martyrdom. And once Stephen was killed, everyone spread. Because they didn't want to get killed either. And they're spreading out. The church is moving out. If you remember Philip, Acts chapter 8. He speaks to the Ethiopian eunuch. And he speaks to the Samaritans. Why did Philip go to Samaria? Because of the persecution of the church. God used Saul's murdering rampage. To spread the gospel. I think that's an amazing thing. This guy was trying to stop the spread of Jesus. All he did was make the spread of Jesus happen. God used Saul's murderous rampage to spread the gospel. And so we see because of that, the church is spreading to Antioch, that will be the sending center of the gospel to the ends of the earth. So let's figure out a little bit about this, this place in Antioch. And I actually have a, a map up here, right here, just to kind of get your bearing. And you can, uh, well, actually, we'll stay there. So I think it's helpful for me as we're talking about places, just to know where it is on a map. That brings a lot of clarity to me, okay? It's kind of dark. Underneath is Jerusalem at the bottom. And you can see how far up Antioch is. So get a picture of the world in your head. This is the Middle East. This is the Mediterranean Sea, uh, modern day, you know, Syria there, Iraq, Iran's to the right, underneath is Israel. So that's where Antioch is. Now go to the next picture. That's where Antioch is. You see the star. Do you see the strategic placement of this city? All of the gospel, all of the rest of the book of Acts and the writings of of Paul happen north and left of there in Turkey going towards Italy. All of all of that's written in the Bible from here happens in these areas. And you can see how Antioch is a perfect place for the church to be so the gospel can spread to this area. It doesn't go east, it goes west. And it all starts in this town of Antioch. Antioch is a big city. It's the third largest city in the Roman world behind Rome and Alexandria. For, you know, comparison, Chicago is our third largest city behind New York and Los Angeles. So it's it's a really big city. It's a political capital of the world of that area of the world. It's a commercial center. Trade routes coming from, you know, Asia coming through there getting to the Mediterranean Sea, they all go through Antioch. A very diverse city. A lot of different people live here. It's not just Jews. In fact, it's minority Jewish folks. Gentiles, people of all different beliefs, of all different nationalities. And it's also a very pagan city. These people don't believe in Jesus. That's not strange because no one really believes in Jesus at this time, right? That's why they're doing what they're doing. But these people, they worship the Greek and Roman gods of the day. There were temples, there were um, sacrifices to these Greek and Roman gods, and, um, and they, they didn't really have a, a great moral code, right? They didn't, they didn't really follow the God of the Bible. Um, some of this worship involved what's called cult prostitution. So kind of nasty stuff going on in this place. This place is ready for the gospel. This place is ready for a message of salvation. This place is ready for the word of Jesus to come and preach, be preached to them for their salvation. And so today, with all this background and and, and getting uh, sort of a recap of where we're at, what are the things about the Church of Antioch that we could learn? Why was this church successful? I I I, I just want to sort of appreciate that. These people are Jews going to a Gentile region, people that, You know, Jews and Gentiles, they don't get along. A lot of, you know, cultural barriers there. To preach the message of Jesus that's for—and They've never heard before. And they're able to do it. They're able to be successful. I'm in a context in Gorham and and we're in a context in Maine where people have heard about Jesus, right? They've heard about the cross. They've heard about the resurrection. And they still don't want to listen to it, right? (laughs) People still don't want to listen to it. These people are so much farther away from that. I'm, and most of the people in Maine, right, are white. I mean, I don't have that, that barrier. These people, they're so much farther away from these people, different in nationality, different in religious background, different in never hearing about Jesus, and yet they are successful in their preaching of the gospel. How? How did they do it? How are they able to beat the odds here? The first thing we see with the Antioch church, and what we can learn as a church at Fort Hill is that these people were effective evangelists. They were effective evangelists. They preached the gospel effectively, and people listened. That's huge. This is what it says 19 to 21. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. I'll stop there. There was a migration of people to Antioch because of the persecution. A large part of this group spoke the gospel only to Jews. So it's like if I, you know, only spoke to people that were like me, right? Young dads or whatever. They only spoke to people they were comfortable with speaking to, okay? That's one section. Verse 20. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene. So this is, Cyprus is an island off of Antioch in Cyrene's northern Africa, there's a group within there, Cyprus Syrian folks, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So there was a portion of that group that didn't just limit themselves to the Jews, didn't just limit themselves to people like them, but spoke also to the Gentiles, these people that were unlike them. What made these people effective evangelists? They shared the gospel indiscriminately. They shared the gospel with whoever would listen. They spoke to everyone, even Gentiles, even Gentiles. And so this is the theme throughout. If you remember last week or week before last, we saw the gospel coming to Cornelius. Peter was a Jew, right? He was, would never sit down in the house of a Gentile. That was like off limits. You don't do that. But God opened a door to the Gentiles. We see that taking place here. This is quite a courageous act, stepping out in faith, across cultural and religious boundaries to preach the gospel. And I want to sort of apply it to us. Have you ever tried talking with someone who does not speak English? Have you ever tried to do that? I don't know if you ever tried it. It's really hard. It's really awkward and weird, right? Um, I know I've, I've been up here. I'll talk to people that do speak English but have a really thick accent, right? Especially the French folks. I remember delivering furniture to a guy in Biddeford. I had no idea what he was saying. And I didn't know that was still around, right? This is an old guy, very thick French. I had no idea what he was saying. And you're trying to communicate, right? Um, Whenever I I got to go to, to China in college and I went to KFC and I was trying to order a number six, right? And I'm just like, Number six, and I'm pointing, and I don't know what I got, you know. It, I didn't die, so, I'm, you know, it, it worked out for me. But, you know, it's, it's hard to communicate with people that are not like you, right? Um, especially if they don't speak the same language as you. And, and then we try to say what we're saying slower and louder, as if that's going to help out, right? <laughs> if I just say it slow and loud, you'll hear what I'm saying, right? Um, now, carry this over to trying to share the gospel with someone. Even if you speak the same language. Because if you're sharing Christ with someone who's lost, you are, you're speaking a different language. Even if you're speaking English. We're speaking a different spiritual language, right? We're speaking a different worldview language. We're speaking things that people in darkness cannot understand apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. These are deep things that God has to open up people's minds to hear. And it's, it's not easy to do. And yet these people did it anyways. They just sowed the seed to all that would hear, to all that would listen. Even people like the Gentiles. And so if we're going to follow the example of the church of Antioch, I think there's two questions we need to ask ourselves. The first is this. Do we know the gospel enough to share it? Do we know the gospel enough to share it? Could you sit down with someone and walk them through the gospel, the good news of Jesus? It's the first question. And then associated with that, could you show people in Scripture where it is? Okay, that, That's one big question. The second one I would say is even more important. Are you willing to do it? One, do you, can, do you know the gospel enough to share it? Two, are you willing to do it? As I think about myself, I know the gospel. I think we all know it. But more often than I, I'm not willing to share it. It's a hard thing. It's not a head thing. It might be a head thing, and that's easy. You can just learn it, and there's ways to, to learn the gospel. And, and we, I'm sure we'll have a, a training course on that at some point. But it's mostly a hard thing are we willing to share it? Are we willing to share it indiscriminately? Are we willing to get uncomfortable? Are we willing to walk past those boundaries that present themselves in day-to-day life, whether it be cultural or relationship boundaries, whatever? The bigger issue is not the head issue. It's always the heart issue. And so as as I think about this, understanding that, effective evangelism is really a matter of the heart, not a matter of the head. We have to have a motivation that's greater than, a, than a, a mental motivation. It has to be a heart motivation. It has to be motivated out of love. This is what 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says. This is Paul talking to the church in Corinth. He says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died for all. That's Jesus. Therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. They understood the gospel enough that it not only changed their minds. It changed their hearts. And it was the love of Jesus that compelled them to speak the gospel to others. Effective evangelism always starts and ends with the heart that's what we see this church in Corinth and let me say this we don't even know who these people are it says men from Cyprus and Cyrene the greatest sending church in the history of Christianity we don't even know who started this church obscure folks that knew and understood the gospel that knew and understood the gospel These people were effective evangelists, and we, to be effective, need to follow their example, sharing the gospel indiscriminately out of love for our fellow man, and out of love for God. The second thing we see is these people were not only effective evangelists, but they intentionally discipled. They were um, disciplers of Jesus, and they did it on purpose. It wasn't like some, you know, random organic type thing. They did it On purpose. Verse 22 to 26. Continuing. Says this. So after the church is growing. Verse 22. The report of this growing church. Came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So the the mother church. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas. They sent him to check out what's going on. When he came and he saw the grace of God. He was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. A great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. He found him and brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So this church that's growing because people are coming to faith in Jesus, now they need to be discipled. Now they need someone here to help them grow in their faith. To learn the scriptures to learn what faith in Jesus looks like practically, to help them along, and so it says that there are two men given this task. The first man we see is Barnabas, and then Barnabas goes and gets the apostle Saul, apostle Paul, same guy. So who is this guy Barnabas? Who's this guy Barnabas? If you remember, we've already met Barnabas. We met him in Acts chapter 4, he um, was a part of the church in Jerusalem, obviously. He, um, in Acts chapter 4, I don't know if I have a scripture on that. Next slide. No, okay, thanks. Um, he sold a field. He laid it at the apostles' feet to provide for the needs of the church. Um, he was a good guy. He was a, an encourager. And he was the, the the delegate, or the guy sent from Jerusalem to Antioch to help the church there. And so, he, um, Barnabas plays an important role, not only in Antioch, but in the rest of the book of Acts. He is the guy who brings the Apostle Paul to Jerusalem. We kind of skipped over Paul's story, but um, just quickly to recap, Apostle Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He goes to Damascus. People want to kill him. Paul runs away from Damascus, goes to Jerusalem. He meets Barnabas. Barnabas uh, introduces him to the church in Jerusalem. People want to kill Paul again in Jerusalem. He runs away to Tarsus, that where is his hometown. And then Paul is there, and then Barnabas goes and gets the apostle Paul. And so you have these two men, Paul and Barnabas, who are here to disciple the church. So what do they actually do? What does discipleship look like? How are Paul and Barnabas going to help these people grow in faith in Christ? Well, the first thing we see with Barnabas is that he will encourage the church. He's an encourager, and his name means the son of encouragement. This is what it says in verse 23. He says, "...whenever he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose." The way the church is discipled through Barnabas is that he encourages them. And that's sort of a funny thing to think about. I don't know if if you think about this word discipleship a lot, but whenever I think about it, I think about reading my Bible, I think about praying, I think about that type of thing. Barnabas, he does that, but his focus is something else. His focus is to encourage. His focus is to exhort. His focus is to build people up. That is his spiritual gift. This is what Romans 12 says. It says, So we, though many, are one in body, in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. And one of those gifts are the one who exhorts in his exhortation. Some people are gifted with the gift of encouragement. God has equipped some people specifically to exhort and encourage others. And that's exactly what Barnabas does. It says that he encourages them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That's how Barnabas does it. Now, I want to take a a deeper look into this and make a distinction. Whenever we think about encouragement, or whenever I think about it, it, often we think about building up someone's self-esteem. I want to encourage you, I want you to feel good about yourself, you're an awesome person, you can do anything you set your mind to, that type of thing. And that's fine, right? That's fine to say, and we should say that. That's not what Barnabas does. Barnabas isn't like, hey guys from Cyrene, you guys are great, you are killing it, you're just knocking it out, you're like, "You, you are doing amazing. That's not what he does. What does he do? He says he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord. He doesn't point their eyes to themselves, right? He encourages them to point their eyes to Jesus. That's why we read in Hebrews 12 at the very beginning, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Encouragers point people to Jesus. That's what they do. Encouragers remind people of the gospel. He says, To remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. The purpose is to preach Jesus to the ends of the earth. That's what encouragers do. They don't tell us to look deep within ourselves to make us feel better about ourselves. Although that's not wrong. They tell us to look at Christ. Again, Hebrews 12, 1-2. This is what an encourager says. Next one. Uh, Oh, did I mess that? Go back. Uh, It's not there. There it is. No, that's not it. Forget about it. It's fine. (laughs) I already said it. Encouragers point our eyes to Christ. That's what they do. Encouragers speak to our hearts and stir our affections for Jesus. I'm going to ask this question. Have you ever been discouraged? Have you ever been discouraged? And I don't mean in a... Like, you know, like Abr- Abram lost his basketball game yesterday. They haven't won a game. Terrible. They're a bad team. it, it is what it is, okay? And that's discouraging. <laughs> that's discouraging, right? That's discouraging. Uh Olivia thought that was funny. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. I'm I'm guessing Sonny's discouraged too. <laughs> Keep the faith. Keep the faith. And so, you know, he comes off the, the court and he's got his head down, you know, and he's discouraged. And, and that's a form it takes whenever you're younger. But what about as, a, as, a, as an adult, right? Discouraged as a father, as a provider, discouraging your job. Discouragement can eat people up, right? Discouragement, if you are discouraged, it leads to an action, it leads to lethargy. It leads to depression for a discouraged church. It leads to unfruitfulness. If you are plowing away and nothing's working, and, and you got all these people telling you know trying to chase you out of town, it leads you to not want to do anything. You're discouraged. In the uh, the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. I don't know if you guys seen that that Christmas movie. At the very beginning, whenever God is is going to send Clarence, the the uh, guardian angel to George Bailey, Clarence is asking, what's wrong? Why, what's wrong with this guy, George Bailey? Is he sick? And God says, no, worse, he's discouraged. And then if you go, if you watch the movie, you know that George Bailey tries to kill himself. And then the angel is there to stop him. We need encouragers because we are prone to believe lies. We are prone to believe lies about ourselves and lies about God. We need people to point our eyes to Jesus, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. If Barnabas wasn't here, this church might not have kept going. If they didn't have someone pointing them to Jesus, to remind them of this gospel message. That's exactly what Barnabas did. They encouraged this church. He encouraged this church. That's one form of discipleship. The second thing that this church did is that they taught the Bible. They taught the word of God. Verse 26. It says, whenever Barnabas found Paul, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many things to the people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Paul and Barnabas spend their time teaching the scriptures. I want to make a point of this. The New Testament didn't exist at this time, right? It hadn't been written. All of the books in the New Testament, Ephesians, Colossians, all that, They were written to churches that Paul started. At this point in time, Paul hadn't started those churches yet. So they're teaching them the Old Testament. They're teaching them um, the the scriptures, the, the gospel, understanding Christ through the Old Testament. And they understood that God creates people through his word. In creation, God spoke and everything existed. God continues to do that. He speaks through his word and he creates us. He creates us through his word. That's the case today. These people lived in a pagan world. They lived in a culture and a society that did not know the word of God and did not follow the word of God. Is it any different for us, right? Is it any different for us today? Romans 12:2 says this. Says do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There is a battle for our minds. There's a battle for our minds. And I, I'm just reminded of that whenever I read the news, Facebook, whatever. It's a battle for our eyeballs, a battle for our minds in this world. This church needed to keep their eyes for the word of God, so their minds would be transformed, so that they could live a life that was pleasing to God. They needed to be taught these things. Hebrews 5, 13 and 14 says this. It says, you need milk, not solid food. The the guy in Hebrews is talking to a church that has not matured in their faith. They don't understand the word of God. It says, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. He's describing their maturity level in Christ. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I got a question for us. Can we distinguish good from evil? Whenever we look at this world and the things the world gives to us, Can we distinguish, okay, this is something God would want me to do. This is something God would not want me to do. This is something that is good, wholesome, edifying. This is something that is evil, false, and destructive. Knowing God's word trains us to distinguish good from evil. Because it's not always easy to tell the difference. Look at this picture here. One of these is fake. Which one is fake? One of them's fake. I got it wrong. Huh? You think the bottom one's fake? Any other takers? <laughs> the bottom one, okay. <laughs> the bottom one is fake, okay? I got it wrong. I said the top one was fake. The bottom one was fake. Counterfeit money, right? Police are able to tell the difference between real and fake money because they know what real money looks like, okay? This world gives us all sorts of counterfeits. This world gives us all sorts of falsehood masquerading as truth. The only way we're going to be able to distinguish is by knowing the real thing, being trained in the Word of God, right? You get the connection here being trained in the truth of Scripture. We have to understand it. We've got to know it if we're going to be able to live it. And that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas do. They spend a whole year teaching these people the truths of Scripture so that they can be equipped to live in this world for Christ. And it works. It says, In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. These people were so set apart for the work of God, that they stood out. And they, the Antiochian folks looked at him and said, okay, those are the Christians. Those are, the word Christian means little Christ. That's what the word Christian means. These are the people that talk so much about Jesus and live such a different life than us that they stand out in the crowd. This church, was they were effective evangelists. They were effective discipleships uh, dis- disciples. They encouraged and they taught the word. And then the last thing we see about them is that they were extremely charitable and they valued gifts and acts of mercy. That's uh, the last point here, verses 27 to 30. It says this, Now in these days, a prophet came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. Uh, this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so the next section here, there's this prophet that comes, this guy named Agabus. And he tells, he has the prophecy that there's going to be a famine in Judea. And that includes Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. And the church responds to this. And we learn a few things about what benevolence is and charity looks like in a church, the first thing we learned about their response is that their response was a corporate response. Everyone was in on this. Everyone heard about what's going to happen, and the whole church was involved in meeting the needs of the church in Jerusalem. We as a church are not silos. We're not, it's not just Fort Hill Church. We, we exist a part of the church. It's lot more than just us. I think that's important. There's a lot of times people care more about their church than the church, right? It's not about this church. It's about the church. It's not about me, you know, this pastor. It's about the word of God going out. So that's something that we see here. These people were not siloed off. They were involved with the needs of other people. They had a mutual mission and and a mutual need, and they met each other's needs. We kind of have that as a church. I'll give you a little bit of background uh, about our affiliation. We as a church are planted out of the North American Missions Board, the... um, Leave the largest church planning agency in the country. Um, we are connected with other churches within the North American Missions Board, connected to um, the regional expression of that is the Baptist Convention of New England down in Northbor- Northborough, Mass. Um, as a BCNE church, we get money from the BCNE. I get a, a stipend every month um, to help pay the bills. Um, and we also, uh, we just got a thousand bucks from the BCNE to help pay for children's ministry stuff, um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So we kind of already have that. We, we don't have to face a famine, right? We're not worried about that, but there's a ton of things that come up. So we kind of already are a part of that corporately meeting each other's needs. Um, the only reason I got to Maine is because of the North American missions board. Whenever I was in college, they paid for me to come up to Maine for the summer to work at a church in Augusta. I didn't pay anything. They took care of everything. They took care of everything for us, for me to come up. And now, you know, five, six years later, here we are, right? Here we are. So I think that's important. The the response was a corporate response. We're all in this together. The second thing is the response was not only corporate, but it was individual these people gave of themselves individually. Verse 29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Everyone gave to the need. Everyone emptied out their pockets, giving to this, this need, this famine that's coming. This is what Second Corinthians 9, 6-7 to says. Whoever sows sows sparingly, um, will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I love this passage because it brings clarity to what giving is all about. You could give a billion dollars Jeff Bezos could give all of his money and if he gave it reluctantly, if he gave it under compulsion, if someone had to rip the check from his hands, it would not be pleasing to God. Right? That's what it says. God loves a cheerful giver. Not a giver. A cheerful giver. Giving is always a condition of the heart. This church, their hearts were right. And they gave. They responded to the need and they gave. Whenever we give, we trust God to provide out of the remainder of what we have. Whenever we give, we have joy in knowing the money that we give is meeting a need. Whenever we give, we are providing for a need that's not met someplace else. So the church in Antioch is an example to us in this. They were charitable and, and I they didn't have anything either, right They just moved there right they, they didn't have anything and they gave it anyways to the church in in Jerusalem and Judea. So as we look at this church in Antioch just wrapping up now, God has provided abundantly for us. Let me just say that as a church, I mean to be here, it's nothing to meet here, right? The church doesn't pay me anything. I have my own job, so there's no overhead here. We have like zero overhead as a church. We were just doing the budget the other day. We, we have so much room. And I, that probably won't always be the case. We're not going to be here forever, right? It's not that big of a place. But we have so much ability to give, so much ability to save, to keep costs low, to give us the ability to meet needs in our, in our communities. It's, it's an amazing thing. And that's the example that the church in Antioch gives to us. And so as I think about this church, they shared the gospel with everyone. They were bold. They had love. They discipled. They encouraged. They taught the word. And they gave of themselves. If we are going to be successful here, we got to do the same thing. We have to do the same thing. Evangelize, equip, disciple, and give. And so I encourage you to pray over that. Where are you in these things? Do you know the word? Do you know the gospel? Are you willing to share it? Do you study it? What do you need? How can I serve you? How can I encourage you? How can I love on you? How can I help provide for you as a pastor, me individually? How can I do that? So that we can be a church after the pattern of Antioch. Because if we are, then people are going to get saved. It's going to happen. And so let's be praying in this direction. In fact, I I thought about naming this church Antioch. Antioch Church. I didn't want to throw people off, so I chose Fort Hill. Um, But but that's the church we need to be. That's our example. That's our goal. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord, just want to thank you for your your word, Lord, that shows us an example of a church that gets it, a church that... um, that really changed the world. And there's no, there's no other way to put it. This church changed the world um, through, through their ministry, God. And, um, and you know, why, it's not like you stop doing that through churches. It's not like you're like, well, we already had one Antioch. We don't need another. That, that's not how you work, Lord. You still change the world through your people and what does it look like for our church to change the world? What are the things that we need to do to, to have the impact that Antioch had, Lord? Um, I, and, and not just us as a, as a church body, but us individually, too, in our day-to-day lives to, to change the world. I know it's one person at a time. So I thank you for the example of the church in Antioch. I pray that we would uh, model ourselves after them, that you would show us the things we need to do, God, um, that we would reach reach this world for you Lord. so we love you, we thank you um, thank you for this time to gather again it's only with Jesus that I pray these things. Amen.